everybody, welcome to the September 30th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Congress overriding a veto for, from President Obama for the very first time. Both the House and the Senate voted overwhelmingly to override Obama's veto of a bill that will allow the families of 9-11 victims to sue the government of Saudi Arabia over the suspicion of involvement. Patty Calhoun from Westward, there seemed to be almost an immediate buyer's remorse from the Senate. It was almost they were astonished that, oh, wait, this was serious? Like we, we, we could actually override a veto with this? Do you think there's going to be amendments on the horizon seeing that we saw such buyer's remorse from the Senate? Well, I think they were just so shocked that they'd actually agreed on something, which that probably has never happened to. Forget the veto. They've just never agreed. I think they did the right thing. I, don't th I think they will leave it alone until after the election. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Is there a winner here seeing that, yeah, Obama's veto was uh, overridden, but then people, it seemed, Congress regretted it almost immediately? Well, some people said they did. You know, if, if Obama is well known for having the worst congressional relations uh, of any president, you know, maybe ever, um, the, the way he just treats them with contempt, and I think this is part, part of this is the fruition uh, of, of eight years of, of that. Uh, the winners are the people who are going to be able to do the lawsuit they want to do, and I think it, it's, it's pretty well known that the Saudi government at the least turned a blind eye to known terrorist financing coming from Saudi sources. Now, can you prove that in court beyond a reasonable doubt? You know, it's, there's the Clinton level of did you do it, and now, now can you prove it? Um, and that may be tough, but it's also going to uh, encourage other countries to think of ways to sue more Americans. Eric Sonnenplug, analyst. Uh, some folks said that this was passed for political points. Do those get scored? Oh, I, it was an easy vote to vote to override the veto to vote for the legislation in the first place. To David's point, it's not just a few obscure congresspeople or senators who had buyer's remorse. You start with Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell. I mean, you're talking the real players here who immediately sort of regretted it. It, it just speaks to the different responsibilities of the two branches of government. Uh, I'm not known at this table for always jumping to Barack Obama's defense, but that was a tough bill to veto. It would have been the easy act would have just been let it go through, let it slide, let the courts sort it out. But I think the unintended consequences here might be worse than... Um, uh, than the, than the noble purpose behind the bill in terms of letting these injured families, these victimized families, have their day in court. I think you could start to see this thing spiral in terms of international relations. And political activist Justine Sandoval joins us. Uh, Justine, this wasn't just a Republican coup. The Senate voted 97 to 1 uh, to override this veto. So do some Democrats have some work to do now, President Obama? Oh, absolutely. And we talk about, you know, this being you know, a 9-11 vote. Nobody likes to vote against anything 9-11 related when it comes to victims. And what I really, I'll be the Obama defender here, what I really find interesting is it was an immediate regret, you know, for the overriding the veto on the vote. And Mitch McConnell came out and said, you know, Obama should have voiced his concerns sooner. Like, vetoing the bill wasn't a concern enough. I just thought it was really interesting that they would go back, you know, override the veto and then blame Obama for it. 
that was astonishing. He, he's probably said he's against the bill if he's vetoed Just it. Eight, so. It's eight years continued on today, so. <laughs> Let's get to it. History was made Monday night as Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump faced off in their first debate. America's financial standing, plans to deal with domestic terrorism, and race relations were among the many issues addressed during the Lesser Holt moderated discussion that brought in a record 84 million people. Patty, uh, at the end of the day, folks talk about who won, who lost, but did this debate make a difference? Well, I think it made a difference because we are going to be talking about Miss Universe, a pageant that no one pays attention to for the rest of our lives. And in fact, as we sat down here today, it's the big issue still because Trump is still tweeting about Miss Universe. Can we forget Miss Universe now and get to some of the substantial issues that came out at that debate? And there were plenty. And by the way, if I say anything stupid, it's because my mic isn't working. I thought um, Hillary Clinton did as good a job as she could possibly do. She had some. She was clearly well practiced. She had good responses to tricky questions. Trump started out fairly strong and then went completely haywire and continues to be haywire, judging by his tweets right now. But I thought, overall, it was a great debate. But it continues. I mean, this is the gift that keeps on giving all week. The responses, the. Um, the surrogates for Trump, who are now talking about Bill Clinton's infidelity, that's always pretty amusing, but given their own background. You know, <laughs> Hillary just doing the happy dance all day on Tuesday, you could tell because she thought she'd done a good job. And the fact checkers, who I think did a pretty good job on catching Hillary on where she was wrong, catching Trump on the many places where he was wrong. Great entertainment, great po politics in action. David, I think for political junkies like us, it was pretty good entertainment, but 84 million Americans, I'm not sure, have the very same appetite for uh, this kind of politics. At the end of the day, it wasn't an enormous train wreck. It wasn't a complete meltdown on either side. Will as many Americans be interested in the next debate? They're both such deplorables. It's pretty depressing to, to watch it at all and think one of them is going to be president. You know, the good thing is one's going to lose. You know, if you want to look at it half the glass half full. Uh, you, can, you, can ha you can lose a debate badly and come back and still win the election. Ronald Reagan's first debate in 84, George W. Bush's in 2004, Obama's in 2012, but all three of those recognized that they had lost the debate, admitted it to themselves, and made changes so that they improved significantly for the next debate. Uh, Trump, in his narcissistic parallel universe, can't admit uh, that he lost and that Hillary was far more presidential. He lacked stamina. He showed he was a lightweight. He was a choker. And remember all those promises he made during the primaries. Oh, he was going to demolish her during the debate. Uh, yeah, that, that didn't happen. Uh, he, he promised he was going to spend a billion dollars on his campaign. Not doing that either, because he doesn't have a billion dollars in liquid assets. His wealth is his high, his high self-esteem valuation of his golf courses and then things like that. Uh, he's such a loser that when Hillary talks about cybersecurity, which is like Bill talking about chastity, he can't even come, have a comeback on that. <laughs> Eric, again, David sets up the table. It's just so well written for you. I, I, uh, sometimes I, I'm, I'm jealous. Actually, never. I'm, I'm, I'm not jealous. Um, you talk a lot about optics. When you, at the end of the debate, what were the optics takeaways for you? Well, I guess my first take, and I'll get to that, is that I really object here because both Patty and David gave cogent answers 
It would appear that they did some preparation. It would appear that they planned. It would appear that they even took the topic with a small degree of seriousness. And I think that's just reprehensible. You don't do that on CIO, much less on a debate in front of 84 million people, which I really think with people watching it on devices and everything else, the real number was probably closer to 100 million people who were tuned in um, for that debate. The overall optics, Trump's first 15 minutes wasn't awful. He held his own. He hit some points on major messages, basically the outsider message, and he kept drumming that in. But I think that's what a lot of people have predicted about this debate is that he had 10 or 15 minutes in him. Because if you go back to all those primary debates, when you're on stage with seven, eight, nine, ten other people and you're dividing 90 minutes or two hours up that many ways, you only have to carry them, you know, you're only on stage, you're only center stage for maybe 10 minutes or so. Here you're center stage for half of a 90-minute debate and he just did not have that in him. There were so many missed opportunities he had the one he started down the track of Hillary's email scandal and then because of his incredible thin-skinnedness if that's a word I can use he immediately diverted it back to talking about properties in Charlotte or investments in Charlotte or whatever she did such an effective job of baiting him she knew and her people there was a psychological profile done of where his soft spots were how you could get him to get off course which even assumes there was a course but the, the, to, get him, to get him off course and respond to you, he is so self-referential and defensive. Everything is through that lens. You talk about violence in Chicago, it's his properties there. You talk about the, the protests and riots in Charlotte, it's his investments there. It's his, um, you talk about race issues and it's his golf property that I guess is integrated in Palm Beach. It's all about the Donald. I could go on, obviously, but uh, I, I'm left thinking about if somebody else had been on that stage against Hillary Clinton, if somebody who really would take it seriously was practiced, had not only practiced for the debate, but been in the political arena for some years, because there is something to be said for just being in the arena. If this had been a Marco Rubio, a John Kasich, run the list of any other credible, still very conservative Republican, we'd be having a different conversation. Justine, uh, clearly folks who were going to vote for Hillary Clinton saw that she won. Folks that are going to vote for Donald Trump saw that he won. But it's that squishy middle that decides the election. The folks who are still flipping a coin, they're saying, I, I don't know. What do you think they walked away with? That, exactly. You know, if you're supporting Hillary, you're supporting Hillary. If you're Trump, you're Trump. That middle, I think that they, I think the most, for the most part, the middle walked away with Hillary Clinton as the victor of that debate. And what was really interesting to me as a woman um, is the if you're a woman, you're a professional, you're any, any type of woman, you have encountered, you know, men who talk over you or interrupt you. <laughs> exactly. So I think even uh, women who are not necessarily supporting Hillary Clinton, that doesn't sit well when you see that. It just irks you kind of to your core. And to watch, you know, the interruptions and his hostility towards her, um, I think it didn't sit well with a lot of people. And I think that maybe it swayed more people over to the Hillary side just on the fact that she was more presidential, she was more composed, 
And I think that her opponent, you know, being Donald Trump, she was able to kind of let him let him talk himself into a hole and let him bring up a lot of topics from, you know, bringing up weight issues that he's showing, bringing up, you know, Miss, the Miss Universe. All of these things don't sit well with women voters who Trump needs to win this election. So I think, and looking at it from that perspective, um, she came out as a victor, pulling, I think, more people to her side. Well, speaking of Donald Trump, he will be in Colorado on Monday visiting Pueblo and Loveland for rallies. This comes in the heels of a $2 million increased investment in advertising in Colorado, signifying that our status as a swing state may be in play. David, uh, $2 million is nothing to sneeze at, but it's also coming only two weeks before the ballots go out in the mail. And uh, Pueblo and Loveland isn't exactly a barnstorming tour. Are we a swing state again? Are we in play? Uh, or is this a little too little too late? No, I, for the choice of where he's going, I think that that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you go where you can get a, a hopefully a, a good crowd of people who like you and get them psyched up. And President Obama, in winning Colorado last time, campaigned three times at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You know, which people thought was kind of ridiculous to keep going energizing your base, but that's all he had. He lost independence, but he was good enough at getting his base out that he, he won the state. He and Hillary have normal campaign organizations to get out the vote. Trump hasn't built that. It's coming in very late. Um, and if it's close, the, the one with a better organization wins, which is why I think Hillary is, even if the polls show an exact tie on election day, uh, she'd be the one likely to, to pull it out. My dad, to show Donald's ineptitude, my dad recently received a fundraising email from him. Now, my dad passed away four years ago. Um, but, you know, I, it's true that doesn't prevent you from voting in Colorado necessarily. True. But this was asking for a donation. And it was a donation of, like, please give me money because I represent Republican values. Now, my dad was very involved in University of Colorado College Republicans back in the late 1940s. But from the 1950s onward, he was always a registered Democrat. So if this is your grassroots, you're, you're sending direct mail of, like, give me money because of Republican values to a guy who's in his entire voting life was a registered Democrat. Um, you don't know what you're doing. You're, you're inept and incompetent. Donald doesn't hire the best people. And if America was hiring the best people, it wouldn't hire either of the parties, not uh, two largest parties nominees. Uh, Eric, as you see the tour we're going to see on Monday, uh, Pueblo and Loveland. They talked about Pueblo being uh, maybe part of a Rust Belt. Does Colorado have a Rust Belt for Donald Trump to take advantage of? If it does, Pueblo is probably it. You could argue some parts of Adams County. You could even argue these days fracking territory up in, in, in Weld County. Uh, but this election, to the extent Colorado's in play, and I'm not completely yet sold that it is in play, and I'll go back to what I've said on this show before, which is if Colorado is indeed in play, if we are a 50-50 state come election day, that bodes well for Trump nationally, because I think we're not going to be a leading indicator of a Trump wave. We'll be a trailing indicator of a Trump wave. Uh, but I don't have any problems with where Trump is deciding to go because any event Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, for that matter, have in the state is a statewide event. The Denver TV stations are going to be there. To the extent there are any newspapers left, they're going to be there. I mean, y you can go wherever you want. Mitt Romney's first appearance in Colorado during that general election campaign four years ago was in Craig, Colorado, on the western slope. I don't, I, I don't have any problem with this. In terms of where the race is at now, I think there are basically two theories. I'll try to do them quick. One is that 
Hillary ultimately pulls out, not an overwhelming win, but a, a comfortable win, just based on plausibility. She is the only plausible candidate and the Democrats' structural advantages with the Electoral College and everything else. I happen to think Trump's has a ceiling in the low 40s. That's where he's been. He can't grow that. My analysis is that Trump sort of lives in a very short room because the floor and the ceiling are about the same. He can't really go below that. His supporters, they factored all the negatives already in. They're with Donald Trump through thick and thin. The floor is there, but he can't grow the floor very much to a very high ceiling. The alternate theory is that Hillary Clinton is the consummate insider. She can never be anything other than the consummate insider in the ultimate outsider year. And that no matter Trump's flaws, um, that it is just too much of a headwind Hillary is running into that the country wants change. I'm betting on the former. I won't bet the House. <laughs> Justine, uh, we have Donald Trump investing $2 million in Colorado, a few more tours. Um, do you think the Hillary campaign will follow suit? Um, I'm not sure, but they should. I think to step back and, you know, take a breather in Colorado like they have has not been the best plan. You've seen the polls narrow, and, you know, Donald Trump's going to come in, and pretty much he needs to go anywhere in this state to try to sway people over. Uh, I think it's a good idea for him to do that. Uh, I don't know if the campaign will, but I would, I would hope that they would, because right now it's crucial and like we had discussed earlier, it's nice not being in a swing state this year. So as much as I don't want to see advertisements from both candidates coming in, I think that it's in both of their favors right now to really start to push in Colorado and to lock down for the Clinton campaign uh, their you know, lead here in the state. Patty, a smart move for Trump to be visiting Colorado now? Yeah, it is. If the state is really in play, and by the way, the polls were looking last week, I think he, uh, he was looking in a dead heat with Hillary. I think it will drop down because of the debate, but I have the bruises to prove it. I was watching the debate with my sister in New York, and every time they said Colorado was in a dead heat, she'd punch me. So um, just for the sake of my upper shoulder, we've got to make sure that changes. I've been watching the commercials, and it's fascinating because they are really on now. And Hillary's commercials are masterful because, for the most part, they are all Donald Trump's sayings. You know, they'll, they'll be, she'll group them in whatever group he offended that week, but she will group them, and they are brilliant commercials. Donald Trump's commercials are all people talking about Donald Trump because they can't find enough coherent things that Donald Trump himself has said, but they're all people talking about him, and it reflects the difference in those two campaigns. Governor John Hickelooper offered his formal support of three ballot issues ahead of the November election this week. In a Colorado Public Radio interview, Hickelooper noted that he'll support the minimum wage hike, an increase in tobacco taxes, and the medical aid and dying proposal. Uh, Eric, the governor does not, uh, he is not a representative bellwether for Colorado voters, but he's still the governor of Colorado. What impact do you think these endorsements will have? Oh, they're more impactful than any endorsement the five of us are going to make around the table. He is the governor of the state. I don't think a whole lot of voters, particularly swing voters, are going to go check off their ballot come four weeks from now sitting around their kitchen table and necessarily say, oh, I wonder what John Hickenlooper thinks about that. But yet it creates good press. It's a good press opportunity for each of these campaigns when they get the endorsement. Real quickly, I think the one that is most interesting to me is probably on the minimum wage increase, given that Hickenlooper comes out of the restaurant industry, given that the opposition is being led by the restaurant industry, the impact is probably most dramatic if this passes on the restaurant industry, that Hickenlooper went the other way. And it always raises the question of, you know, Hickenlooper these days, how much of the lens that he's viewing this through 
is a Washington lens and trying to set himself up for some opportunity with the President Hillary Clinton. Justine, I haven't seen the polling on the tobacco tax, but I would imagine a tax that's on a lot of other people usually does well. So, uh, and we've seen the polling on medical aid and dying already doing well. But the minimum wage one is the one that's still probably going to be the one we're going to be watching on election night to see how it goes. Do you think this will be influential on that campaign? Uh, minimum wage, absolutely. I think uh, a majority of people I have spoke to in my world <laughs> seem to support minimum wage. And I think that's the idea that the economy is growing in Denver and in Colorado. And we're talking about all of this money coming in and how we're a booming economy. But I think the reality is a lot of people aren't feeling the benefits of that coming in. And so this is very important to a lot of people who are looking for, you know, um, an increase in wages and being able to just live in this state. Everything has went up in the past decade besides co uh, in cost of living besides wages. So Americans and Coloradans especially are struggling to keep up. And I think that... You know, the, a lot of people are, are on the fence when it comes to whether or not this impacts small businesses, whether or not they can survive this type of hike. And having, um, you know, Hickenlooper's endorsement, I think, really helps uh, the conversation to say, all right, we need a wage increase. And then we work out the issues behind that, behind the state. Patty, uh, what about what uh, Eric and Justina made the point? Is Hickenlooper's endorsement of minimum wage increase being a former restaurant owner significant? Well, it's certainly more significant than I think of the other two cases. It's going to be interesting to see how the restaurant industries push. You know, their biggest problem with it is the whole tip share issue, and they make a good argument that it is a real flaw in how this is written. I think in general, everyone thinks people should earn a fair wage for what they're doing, and so that is the regular sentiment. The other thing that might knock that one down is just do we want it written into the Constitution? And that's also going to be an issue on the tobacco tax bill. I haven't looked that closely at it, but it's supposed to, the, the biggest arguments against it, besides why should we pay for our sins, is um, that it's writing more things into the Constitution. And I think there's going to be a real backlash this year for people who do not want to write more stuff into the Colorado Constitution. That'll be another interesting race to watch. David, uh, what's your take on the governor's endorsements? I, th I think uh, the tobacco thing is another example of his long-running fiscal irresponsibility. This constitutional tax creates these vast pots of money which automatically flow to executive agencies, Department of Health uh, mainly, to give out in grants and are basically immune from legislative control. You know, if the Department of Health is spending money badly, the normal system is the legislature can cut their appropriation or put some specifics on how they're supposed to do it. And that's, that's how things work, in, you know, in a normal democracy. But this creates vast pools of money that will be basically immune from legislative control or from anybody else's control in the political system. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I would like to say, judging by the comments I got last weekend, it was me for, on this show. <laughs> from, from what I, thank you, Eric, from what I said <laughs> about the two candidates being the evil of two lessers. And I'd like to point out, you said thick and thin, which is very sizest on this show today. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there was that. And then also the fact that I need to get a new hairdo, says the homeless advocate. So... <laughs> Uh, I was probably very disgraceful last Friday, and I hope I was again today, but the VA, the long-running disgrace that they have given some things to Congress, but they are still not as forthcoming as they should be about the problems in Aurora. And when you have a suicide hotline, pick up the phone. 
That was out of all the stunning headlines about that. That was the one that floored me. You've got to be kidding me. Please hold. We'll get yeah exactly. Uh, David, your disgrace of the week. Uh, the U.S. Department of State for giving citizenship to Hillary's new surrogate, Alyssa Machado, who not only was a beauty queen, but drove the getaway car in an attempted murder uh, and threatened to kill the judge. She wasn't convicted of either, but you, she basically admitted it on TV. said, oh, that was a long time ago, 20 years ago, who cares? Which, of course, is when Trump allowed, you know, said mean things to her because she got fat while she was being Miss Universe. And, and also had a baby with a Mexican drug kingpin. You do not have to admit... You, you can deny citizenship on grounds other than a foreign criminal conviction. Citizenship is not an entitlement, and it is nobody who tried to, who threatened to kill a judge ought to be getting American citizenship. When telenovelas are easier to understand and comprehend than the actual election in the United States of Colorado and the United States of America, that might be a sign for us. Eric, you're next. I'm speechless about uh, David. I was going the same place Patty was with the VA, but since she hit that very well, how about the Agape Church up in the north suburbs of Denver that has had to s seem to have one sexual abuse story after another? And as with most of these incidents, the real scandal, well, obviously the incidents themselves are a scandal and a crime, but then the cover-up um, that the church leaders have tried to engineer makes it even worse. Justine. Uh, my disgrace of the week is personal. It's the vandals who decided to destroy uh, Sacred Heart churches, um, stained glass as well as the 100-year-old statue. That, to me, was very disheartening. I grew up in this neighborhood, and my family has attended that church for years. It's over 130 years old, so that is my disgrace of the week. Say something nice about somebody, Patty. I'm going to say something nice about the people planning the rebuild of the mall. They, yesterday at a Denver Partnership meeting, they said they are planning on not moving the buses over to 15th and 17th, you know, because the traffic is so beautiful on those streets, but they are going to try to come up with a solution that keeps that free shuttle that everyone who comes to Denver loves on the mall in some form or other. David. President Macri of Argentina, who is bringing the country back from the brink of uh, Chavezism and, and Castroism, um, if Gary Johnson is looking for a foreign leader to respect, he would be a good choice. Any foreign leader. <laughs> Eric. I had the same thought as soon as you went to Argentina. Yeah. Gary Johnson should tune in or subscribe to David's blog. Uh, happy Rosh Hashanah this weekend. Shana Tova to all who celebrate, and may it be a good year. Here, Justine. Uh, to the I-70 toll lane that is actually reducing traffic coming back from the mountains. <laughs> nice to see something yeah. work up there. It's nice. <laughs> that is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to stick around tonight for Colorado Decides, where we take a look at Propositions 107 and 108, which would create open primaries in Colorado. And stay tuned at 930 to see our 2016 Both, both Sides of the Story tournament roll on. This week, Cherry Creek High School takes on the Red Light Camera Band debate. You don't want to miss it. Also, be sure to check out the CIO podcast feed on iTunes, because we have a special edition there. We're adding our debate program. So Colorado Decides and all the programs you're seeing on Friday nights, you can catch those on the CIO podcast feed on iTunes. So be sure to check that out. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Pizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.